the book of Hebrews. And uh, we're calling this series Elevating Jesus. All right, so we're going to take the next uh, probably several months. We'll see how this thing will end. But we're going we're gonna to go through the book of Hebrews, which is kind of our, our MO here is we like to take, take our time going through books. And we, we, the last six months of last year, uh, we, we changed things up. We did uh, what we call like a wave top series where we're just kind of trying to get the essence out of the book, right? So we're reading big chunks of scripture. So what we're going to do is we're going to slow this down. Uh, as a church uh, here in Oceanside, we've never done the book of Hebrews. Uh, we've gone through most of the New Testament now. Uh, but this is one of the books we haven't. This is a dense book. It's, it's, it's going to be full of rich theology and ideas. And this book is really going to challenge us. It's, uh, we're going to come across things like uh, once saved, always saved. Is it possible to fall away from the faith? Like We're going to have to get into some of these things that we, we think we understand. And we're going to be challenged uh, on our beliefs getting into this book. Um, so I'm excited about it. We also have a number up on the screen, uh, Q&A. So if you have a question, because we're going to go a little more in depth, um, you know, we want your participation. If, if, if I say something, maybe, I, maybe I'm, I'm wrong. Say, hey, I, I understood the verse this way. You're welcome to text it in. Uh, Pastor Trace and I will come up at the end and discuss it and uh, try to get to the bottom of it. If we don't know, we'll tell you and we'll do our research and we'll, we'll get together. And it could just be a general question. It's like, hey... What are the ramifications or implications of the verse of this in my life? So they can be personal questions. All righty. So let's, I don't want to spend too much time. Uh, I am notorious for, uh, for rabbit holes. Uh, yeah, what do you say? Rabbit trails. What are rabbit holes? That's how deep I'm going to go. I'm not even going to say I'm just going to bore into the earth. Uh, but uh, I really do love the Bible. I would say one of my passions, and this isn't... Uh, it's not saying because I'm like, oh, I'm cool. It's like, for whatever reason, when, when I got saved, uh, I, for whatever, I just have a great love for history. And some of you are like this, too. I'm, I'm not the only one. I, I really do love the scripture. I, I love reading as a, as a big work. And so I just love it. Like, I, I love the stories. And so, you know, one verse will remind me of 100 other verses. And that's how I get. See, even right now, just talking about my great love, I'll spend 10 minutes talking about it and waste your time. So I'm going to try not to do that. Uh, but Hebrews, if we just, by, if you don't understand the book, it doesn't have a traditional reading like a letter. So if you like turn the page prior to your Bible, you'll say, hey, Philemon, this is Paul, right? Like so Old Testament letters starts off with the author addressing who they are. You know, our letters, you have to turn them back into the letter and say, who's this from? Right? It says right up front, say, hey, uh, to Timothy from Paul. Right? He sends his readings. And Hebrews doesn't just kicks right off. Now the authorship is disputed. If you have a King James Bible, like I know my Bible says to uh, the Hebrews from the Apostle Paul. It just says that. So it's been assumed for hundreds and hundreds of years that Paul wrote this letter. You know, now that we have modern technology, now it's kind of disputed who wrote it. Some people think it was Barnabas or um, whatever. It doesn't matter because we just don't know. The letter was never signed. Um, in chapter 13, we find out that whoever the author is, is they were associated with the saints in Italy, right? So... Uh, what's going on in Rome, Romans, all these kind of things. So there, there was some kind of fellowship between this person and the people in Italy. Um, most people now think this was an early sermon. But what you're actually looking at the, in Hebrews is actually a copy of a sermon. In chapter 13, uh, he calls it a word of exhortation. So the author knew this wasn't a letter, but the, the point was he was writing this to a group of people to exhort to them. If you read the book of Hebrews from the first page to the last page, it'll take you about 30 minutes. It tells you how far sermons have come. If you could put that much theology in a 30-minute sermon, right? Now, we're going to spend 30 minutes a day just talking about the first three lines. 
this is like a dense work here. Now the author also makes references that assumes you know what he's talking about. It's called Hebrews because he's he's writing to Hebrews. He's writing to uh, to Jewish people that have been saved, and he's going to assume that you are an Old Testament scholar. Tim Mackey, I don't know if you know who he is. He's one he's one of my favorite Bible scholars, and he says uh, whoever wrote Hebrews is an Old Testament gunslinger, right? He says pretty much every line he's referencing the Old Testament because he doesn't necessarily call it out. It might be lost on us if we don't know our Old Testament. But he also does jobs on Hebrews 2.6. Look at how he quotes this passage here. I think you'll get a kick out of this. He says, uh, but one testified in a certain place. Right? He doesn't even give you the chapter and verse. He goes, someone somewhere wrote this. Right? This is pretty awesome. right? Like, and it sounds like a sermon. You're not going like, to waste valuable time giving you chapter and verse on everything. So he just he says what he needs to say, and he moves on with it. Okay. So the author is going to start us on a journey of, of contrasting Jesus with all the other things the Jewish people have been informed by their life. The angels, the Torah, Moses. And he's going to reveal how Jesus is superior. Now we've named this series Elevating Jesus. Because when we, when we kick off in Hebrews, he's going to start comparing what other people have elevated above Jesus. The author's sole intention, especially in chapter 1, 2, and 3, is to talk about how Jesus is superior than what they have. Now, for us, you know, next week we'll get into the angels. He's going to talk about how Jesus is superior than the angels. Is, that doesn't really mean a lot to us. This is kind of lost thousands of years later. We're not, A, we're not Jewish. We haven't been brought up. This isn't a lifestyle, right? So the Torah has not framed most of our lives, right? Jewish customs and traditions have not really been that much of an influence. So we have different things that we can substitute in there, right? So when we say Jesus is greater than the Torah, sure. But it's a little bit different when I say Jesus, what Jesus says should be weightier than what your mom and dad say. That might mean more, right? Because we listen to our parents. The idea that maybe they give advice is contrary to what Jesus says. Or we should elevate Jesus above our peer groups. As you get older, my, my peer groups have less and less influence over it. You'll, you'll find that to be true as you get older. You, you don't succumb to peer pressure, right? Trace brought beer over to my house last night, and I didn't have it. I was like, Trace, get out of here. Yeah, okay. No, it's a tasteless joke. I shouldn't say Anyways, my point is, is it's really hard. Like, it'd be really tough to peer pressure me into something now cruising towards 50. I just don't care. I, I know I'm not cool. Like, you know what I mean? So it's whatever. I've moved on. However... It was a different story when I was an 18-year-old, right, where I wanted to fit in, where I really cared about these things. I cared more about what people thought about them. So how do I elevate Jesus above my social circle, my peer group, where Jesus says, hey, this is how you should live, but my peer group says I should live like this, right? So that's what Hebrews is getting after. It's like, hey, we, we, he's reminding these early saints that Jesus is superior in all other aspects, and he's going to lay out a case on why that is. So no further ado, let's read. Today we're just going to tackle the first three verses. We have a, a beautiful description of our Lord and Savior here. So I'm going to read this text, then we'll pray, and let's dive into this. It says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the one that gives eyesight 
ears the ability to hear. Lord, help us to hear today what you are saying. Lord, Spirit, speak to us. Help us understand. Lord, if I have misunderstood or misrepresented your scripture, may it fall upon deaf ears. May what is true remain, what is false fall away, that we may become more like you, Jesus. We love you. We bless you now. The church said? Amen. 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 Well, I referenced Tim Mackey already, so I'm going to tell you one other thing he says. When he thinks about Hebrews, he says, someone is speaking. Are you listening? Someone is speaking. Are you listening? So this is what we're going to tackle in these first three verses. He says here that in the past, God spoke to us by the prophets. Today, he's speaking to us by his son. But to really get into this, because we're going to kind of do a deep dive today, is we have to understand what the Bible means by listening. Now, if you uh, have been around our church for any length of time, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, the Shema, we kind of went through this, so this would this be a refresher. But the word listen in Hebrew is it, Shema, right? It comes from a prayer, and that word is hear. That comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. This is not a screen, but I'll read it to you. This prayer says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. The idea here is that word hear is Shema. But it doesn't mean just to hear. Hearing in Hebrew, there's no word for obey. It's the same word as Shema. So the idea is married together. When you hear, it's expected that you will obey. When it says that you're not hearing what I'm saying, it also could mean you're not obeying, right? Like, you can hear the gospel. Like, you can tell people about Jesus, but that doesn't mean they've heard. Right? Does that make sense? You hear. So in Hebrew, hearing and obeying. So remember, somebody's speaking. Are you listening? It's one thing just to hear what I'm saying, but are you, are you actually doing something with it? In Deuteronomy 30.10, it says this. If you obey the voice of the Lord, that word obey is Shema. If you hear the voice of the Lord, if you obey the voice of the Lord, your God, to keep his commandments and the statutes which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So we see there that the English translators helped us out. Instead of changing the word to hear, they said, okay, it really means more obey here. All right? So we need to understand that. Someone is speaking. Are you listening? Can you hear what they say? So luckily we're not kept in the suspense that someone is speaking. As he tells us who is speaking, right? That it's the Son. So let's dive, let's dive into this. So the first verse, it says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So let's look at how he spoke to the fathers by the prophets. In 12, Numbers 12, 6, let's just do a couple of verses here. He says, hear now my words. If, in, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. So it says, in many ways, he spoke to the prophets. So some are visions. He spoke in dreams. Numbers 12, 8 says this. To Moses, he says, I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then will you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses. So the Lord will speak to people directly, right? We have other examples we won't read now, but he, like he spoke through a still small cloud, right? Like he spoke through a donkey, Balaam's donkey, he made a donkey talk. Like, so he says, like, hey, in many ways, like God has been speaking to his people. Cried out from a burning bush. The bush wasn't talking, right? But like, there's all these examples of how God communicated. And God, here, here's God's big thing. In the Old Testament, he always communicated through human agency. So God wanted to deal with Pharaoh. His people were enslaved, and he chose, who did he choose to go talk to Pharaoh? This is not a tough question, guys. Thank you. Stuart, if you did it, yes, that's brilliant. 
I was going to say, come on, Stuart doesn't know this. We're going to stop. We're going to Bible 101. It's like, we should not be in Hebrews because this is going to be a very long six months. Yeah, so Moses. So God sends Moses. But Moses kind of kind of has a panic attack. He's like, I'm not going to talk to Pharaoh. And it's the first time God ever gets angry in the Bible. It doesn't say he gets angry at the sinners. He's not mad at Cain. right? He's not mad at Nimrod. He gets mad at Moses because he doesn't trust God. He's like, wait. God's like, I'm going to send you there. You're going to be like a god in Pharaoh. Moses was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. So Moses had to bring his brother for 50 points. They were no Moses' brother's name. Aaron. Aaron. Yes, let's have any voices. You didn't know Moses, but you know Aaron? Come on. This is going to be a long day for me if you don't get all of this. Maybe I should stop asking the question. Yeah, so he, Aaron decides to speak. But that gives you the picture that God is always speaking through human agency. Right? God always has a representative. That's what we would call in biblical terms a mediator. There's somebody that's going to be between God and us because the people can't. The mediator. So God has always had a mediator. And it's so true with our sins, right? So when God wanted to punish sins, it was the blood, right? The animals. Always a mediator. There's always something between us and God. Sometimes it was even a physical wall. Verse 2 says, But these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Now we know the Son is Jesus. Hopefully, hopefully this is not a surprise because I didn't want to spend any time dialing this in. So we're going to pop a slide up here. Let me do this. It describes the Son for us, right? We get five attributes of the Son. It says he's appointed the heir of all things. It says through whom he created the world. It says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It is important to note it is not the power of his word, it is the word of his power. That order is correct. So what I want to do here for the sake of understanding and really just dialing this in, I'm going to break this group of five into two groups. One is going to be what he does versus who he is. Right. So what he does, I liken these three together. He's created all things, he sustains all things, and he inherits all things. Right. So Jesus created all things, Jesus sustains all things, and Jesus inherits all things. Now this is going to be important, right? This is going to set up, because the Bible is telling us this is the one who is speaking to you. The creator is speaking to you, the sustainer, and the inheritor. Now inherit might be a little bit weird. Some of these might all be weird, but we're going to talk about these, so let's deep dive. Next slide, please. It says, Let's get into created all things. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Who is the word of God? Jesus, the word, right? That's one of his, his names. He is the word. So that it was seen was not made of the things that are visible. Psalm 33.6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. So we see there... Again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but in Job and other books, we see there that there's other agents in creation. If we don't read the Bible, we read Genesis. If we don't read the Bible, we read Genesis. Work that out. My point is, if you don't read the whole of the Bible, and only Genesis is floating in your mind, the Bible says a lot about creation, that actually angels were singing on that day, watching God create. We find that out in the book of Job. It's wild stuff, right? Because Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we, we know this. And that, you know, next level we find out God starts using words like us, right? Let us make man in our image. So we realize, okay, there's some other people involved in this. And as you're reading, you find out, okay, wait a minute, the angels are watching God create all these things. So they're singing and praising him as he's doing it. 
And the Bible says that through whom all things were created. That through Jesus, all things were created. So our Savior, the one who is speaking, has had a hand in his creation. He's not a Johnny come lately God. He was there in the beginning. Amen? That means Jesus is eternal. Right? So there's some things we can glean from this. That Jesus is the eternal God. Your brain is going to hurt as we go. Trust me, it's going to get worse. Next thing, it says he sustains all things. Genesis 2.7 says this, And the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. Listen to this. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. I actually did a message on this a couple years back. It's the Spirit, right? So God's Spirit is likened to his breath. If you didn't know this, Hebrew is ruach, right? I'm, it's not a hard K. My mouth doesn't make the correct Hebrew sounds. Ruach. There you go. That's a little closer. And it's his breath. And it's the idea that his breath is his spirit and it's an animating force. That means when God breathes on things, things come to life. Now, if you read your Bible, you're going to find out there's a point in time when Jesus breathed on people. You remember this? And it wasn't after he had to tell you, like, hey, check my breath, Peter, I'm about to go to the Pharisees. No. He blew on him. What happened? What did he say when he blew on somebody? Do you remember this? Received ye the Spirit. Like, he gave somebody the Spirit of God and breathed on Boy, that's a huge image of God breathing life into heaven. In the New Testament, Jesus breathed on people like, receive ye the Spirit. It's wonderful. In Job 34, 14, and 15, it says this. If God were to take back his spirit and withdraw his breath, all life would cease and humanity would turn again to dust. This is the big picture of God's breath. It's amazing because we talk about the Holy Spirit. That's his breath. Like he breathes out. Like even his breath is life-giving. It's so much so that it is his breath, his spirit is God. It says if he was to call that back, all life on earth would die. Right? And I, I can go through a lot of scriptures that talks about where God even sends his breath for the deer that gives birth to the Father for us. Right? Like he is, his breath, his spirit, his sustainment is energizing all life on this earth. That sounds very new age, right? But that's it. Like his spirit is doing that. If he was to withdraw it, we realize that all earth would just cease to exist. And it's interesting that Jesus, when he left, his spirit remained. Right? He said, look, I will send the spirit. And his spirit's always been here, but now his spirit is manifested. If that makes sense. Like, it's become a reality. Instead of this intangible thing. In creation, when God was creating the world, it says his spirit was hovering over the face of the deep, over the waters. Because he was about to create life. Where there's life, there's spirit. So the Bible says here, Hebrew says, that Jesus sustains all things by the word of his power. It's Jesus that allows that spirit to remain here. The Bible says the spirit will put you in remembrance of everything Jesus said. The spirit, the only thing the spirit does, not the only thing, but one of the main things he does is he points to Jesus. That's what the spirit's role is here. And that's how he sustains this whole world. And if we talk about it, the one who is speaking is the one who allows us to live. It's amazing, right? It's a very deep thing. So the creator the sustainer of all life on this earth. Next, it says he inherits all things. Now, this is going to get wild. This is where I'm really worried it's going to go off the rails for me because this is my favorite. Psalm 2.8 says this, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Whoa, this is wild. 
we have a big disconnect because people, when they say, hey, you're a Christian, they automatically assume we think God is the controller of who, who, who thinks that way? God, if we serve God, that means he controls everything. But that's a disconnect with the Bible, because the Bible actually says that God is not in control of everything. Yet. Yet he is. We have, a, we have an imbalance going on here. It's like we live in a very broken world. Why hasn't God done it? Remember this, this Revelation 11, 15 says this, that the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. One of the last things that happened is Jesus inherits the nations. That's why Hebrews says he shall inherit. He becomes the heir of all things. He shall inherit all things. So if you don't know, that would raise some questions. Like, well, wait a minute. What's happening here? How can you inherit the nations? Like, how does this play? So let me give you the biblical story. Let's do a Bible run now. This will be very quick. So God creates man and woman. Everything is good in the garden. Right? Uh, man and woman sin. We have kids. That first generation, we have our first murder. Everything is going haywire. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 10, God is so frustrated with humanity, has gone so bad, that he decides to break up humanity. He's going to separate people. Right? This is the Tower of Babylon. He says, because man is working together with wickedness. They want to, so man wants to exalt himself above God. Right? We see they want to build a tower and it goes to heaven. He said, well, this sounds like complete foolishness. It's like, I think you're reading this wrong because why would they, it says they built this tower in a plain of Shinar. Why would you build a tower to reach the heavens, the valley, in a plain? Right? If you want to reach the heavens, you should build the Jonah on the mountain. Right? Give yourself an extra 4,000 feet to manage without the building. But the Bible is getting at here. They want, they're exalting themselves above God. They built themselves a tower. They built the first city. They come together. And the city collectively is shaking their fist at God. So God is like, man, this is my, you got to do something about this. So he divides the people. It says, he says, uh, I think Deuteronomy we learn that he divides us according to the number of sons of God, which is a really weird saying. But God there in Genesis 10, it says he disinherits the nations. It's really wild. Like he, he basically casts off them. I'm not your God anymore. Up until Genesis 10, there was one God, the Lord our God. He disinherits them. He doesn't want them anymore. And he says, I'm going to make for myself a nation. And he starts with one man. Who is that one man God wants to make a nation from? Abraham. Abraham is called the father of many nations. Oh, it's going to get wild here. So God disinherits the nations. And God, like Babe Ruth in the World Series, when he called his shot right up the corner, and said, I'm going to make a great nation of you. He points to him and said, Abraham is just living in the desert. Like, okay. And then Abraham has a problem, right? What's Abraham's problem? He can't have kids. How's this guy supposed to be the father of many nations? He can't have his wife, can't have kids. So we're not going to get buried down here. But God, then, since Genesis 10, has only had one nation. And he said, these other nations are serving other gods, is what he says. In Deuteronomy, we find out the other gods are demons. This gets weird. It's going to hurt your theology to find out what the Bible says. It says the other nations worship. Sometimes they'll call them false idols. Sometimes we just think they're wood. And what the Bible says, there's actually a very real spiritual entity behind that. If you don't believe me, we can talk about that. But I'll show you in the scriptures. But we've got to go quickly. A great example of it is Daniel. Daniel's praying. And Gabriel the angel was dispatched to send him an answer from God. He says, the prince of Persia withheld me. I couldn't answer because the spiritual being over this country stopped me from coming into it. So these other nations, they serve false gods. 
Jesus, when he was tempted, his first temptation was what? Food, because he needed fasting for 40 days. But the final temptation was, is Satan showed him all the nations of the world, brought up him and said, I will give you all the nations if you just bow down and worship me. And we pause there, it's like, if Jesus, Jesus' mission is to reclaim the nation, it's not only our personal salvation, that is a piece of it. But Jesus' mission, the ultimate, the big picture mission, is to reclaim the nations. He disinherited them at the beginning. But by the time we get to Revelation, we have to see that Jesus is going to reinherit all the nations and become the king over the whole earth. But right now, the nations are hostile to him. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? They assemble themselves together against God and his anointed. God is always in battle with the nations, even to this day. You said, Who's God at the beginning? You said, Satan. It's like, Well, you're right, but the proxy war is with the nations. In Revelation, the nations meet to fight God in the battle of Megiddo. It's the nations. It's a special judgment of the nations in the book of Revelation. So this idea that Jesus will inherit all the nations. He says, stay seated until I make the nations your enemies a footstool. Right? Like, Jesus is going to battle the nations. Now, which makes us have to answer some other tough questions. I told you already God has one nation. That was Israel and Abraham. Now, was Israel faithful to God, yes or no? No. no. Just because they're God's nation doesn't mean they're perfect. That's why Jesus had to come, because Israel couldn't do what they were supposed to do. I think by design, it's impossible to do these things. Israel was called God's son. Right? These are the names for Israel. I've never preached on this side of the I realize I always favor my left-hand side. I'm like, what am I doing over here? I feel like I've lost my tether. I'm going to look to screw the tank and back over everybody. I'm really messed up standing over there. I've never stood over there. It's like eight years over there. I was really messed up. I'm sorry. But anyway, so God. The nations, where was that? Oh, God. Nations. You weren't even good at The sun. Yes, Israel. Israel was the sun. So Israel failed, but they're God's one true people. Now, today, you've probably heard America is a Christian nation. The United States is a, is a Christian nation. You hear all these things. I would argue. No nation is a Christian nation. That God's only got one nation, and that's Israel. The Bible says that when we get saved, we get grafted into Israel. It says not all are Israelites that are of Israel. You don't have to be a Jew to be grafted into Israel. The nations are hostile, friends. That includes us. Now you think, it's like, this, here go, this, here, here comes the commie message, right? Here we go, Air Force guy. Go pick it. Man, trust me, it, it hurts my heart to say these things, but I'm just trying to give you the biblical worldview of these things. My father was in Vietnam, my grandfather before that was in World War II. The other grandfather was in the Korean War. I had relatives that uh, direct lineage in the Civil War. The North, thank you very much. In case you want right? Like, it can, I mean, it's a very strong patriotic streak in my family. And I love this country as much. Like, if we got in a war, I would still want to sign up to fight. Like, if the Nazis came back, I come down for the cause of America. But it doesn't make us a Christian nation. Because the nations are hostile. God has one nation, it's Israel. And the church gets grafted into it. God is in the business of saving people out of every tribe, nation, tongue, right? To make us into one people. But Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, man nor woman, slave nor free. One. He's making one people. Like it's his idea to divide the nations. He made all the different people groups. But he wants to make us one in Christ. So when we say that this nation is founded on Christian principles, these may all be true. But there's no such thing as Christian nation. 
right? It's Christian people that are in a nation. Because are there Christians in Russia? Yes. Yes, are there Christians in Ukraine, in Afghanistan? Like, these are not Christian nations. We know these are not Christian nations, right? The point is, is God will deal with the nations separately, the governments. But he's after people now. This idea that we have this Christian nation that's out there fighting good. America has fought and will fight for a lot of them. But that doesn't mean they're on God's side. The people in the nation are on God's side, but the nation as a whole cannot be. Amen? You may disagree with that. My phone's not blown up yet. But he has to inherit back the United States of America. Right? He's going to inherit the nations where the wrongs will be righted. Amen? Okay. So here's another interesting thing. When we say he created all things, he sustains all things, he inherits all things, this is a very good image of the Father, Spirit, and the Son. So the Father is the agent of creation. The sustainer is the Spirit. The inheritor is the Son. Some people argue the Bible is like, well, where is the Trinity mentioned? It's like it's littered throughout the Bible, understanding that there's three representations in the Bible. And this is another one, right? Because when we think of the Creator God, we think of the Father, right? But Hebrews tells us it's through the Son He created all things that God spoke. The Father, the sustainer, and the breath of life, the Spirit, and the inheritor of the Son. So we have a, a beautiful image of the Trinity here. Okay, so let's couple the next two what we know about him. It says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So I put a definition of um, glory is a tough word. So I'm trying to, trying to explain somebody, uh, I heard uh, John Piper say, like, explaining glory is like explaining the word beauty to somebody that didn't understand it. Like, like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Like, try to, like, how do I explain what beauty is? Like, you're, you're attracted to it, but it's so much more, right? It's not only physical attraction. Art, People, deeds can be beauty, right? Attitudes, gifts, the opposite sex, right? Like beauty is such an all-encompassing word, and glory is like that. But for our sake, a good working definition would be the glory of God is the invisible qualities, characters or attributes of God displayed in a visible or knowable way. Now when it says that Jesus, he's the radiance of the glory, so we understand that Jesus reflects the glory of God. Radiance it can be self-generating or it can be reflecting, like the radiance of something. So Jesus reflects his glory. So we have to understand what glory is. I gave you the definition, but uh, do I have Proverbs 2029 next? Did I put this on there? I don't even know if I have Proverbs here. It's not, okay. So Proverbs 2029 says this, the glory of the young is their strength. The gray hair of experience is the splendor of the old. So we see here that, there you go, Jackie. It doesn't say anything about a bald head for me. I was like, I'm not going gray. There'll be no here to show that. This says the glory of the young men is their strength. So what's on display for young men is their strength, right? What can be seen about a young man? An old man, what can be seen is his gray hair. His wisdom is on display. Isaiah 6.3 states, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Right? So how do we wait a minute? Let's pause like, Glory means I can understand about God's invisible attributes by something I see. I understand something about God's invisible attributes that I can physically see. It says the whole earth is full of it. Psalm 19, 1 says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. So when we look up into space, have you ever like seen images of space or on a really dark night you, see, you can see the stars it says that declares the glory of God. 
Like the God that could create all this, that his word goes out and is made. It says that's his glory. Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that he has made. So Romans actually says, like, even without preaching something the gospel, that the trees, the mountains, the sky, will testify against them. He says that you can see ahead of the creator in our beautiful world. When you see the diversity of animals, my wife loves elephants. Giraffes and dogs, and you just see these all these diverse creatures, this diversity of humanity. He says his fingerprint is everywhere but created. He says that shows forth his glory. Now, so if showing if something has invisible attributes and glory being a physical representation of it, think back to Genesis. God made something in his image. Who was it? Us. We're to glorify God. We are the glory of God. Adult. That doesn't mean we're worthy of praise, so we're going to stop there. But he said we were made in his image to reflect God's glory. That's our whole job. Isaiah teaches us our role in this life is to glorify God. What does that mean? That we are to represent him. Right? We're to reflect him. We're to image him. The imitators of God as dear children. That's what Paul will tell us. But it says Jesus finally did it. Because we all missed it. Adam and Eve missed it. Cain and Abel missed it. Like none of us have glorified God correctly. Like sometimes we think it's just singing. Well, that's true. Glorifying is singing, right? Because we're elevating Jesus. We're making his praise. But glorifying is such a, a huge word. Because it actually means living out the call on your life to glorify him. Now when we get to Jesus, he's the radiance of God's glory. Everything that God is, is Jesus is what this is. Jesus perfectly reflects everything the Father is, Jesus is. Then it says he's the exact imprint of his nature. So that means, it's like a wax seal in the old times. This is the, the verbiage you're using here. Is, have you ever seen those rings and you press it on the wax and it leaves a mark? That's what it means. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. So if you want to know what God is like, you find out Jesus. Now for unbelievers, there's a big holdup. Like, hey, what, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, have you ever thought about this? Hey, the God of the Old Testament is the Marine Corps and the God of the New Testament Sierra Force, right? Like, someone's getting their butt kicked in the new one. It's like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll take these. It's a bad joke. Because Air Force is okay. But they're the same God. It's the same mercy. It's the same grace, right? Jesus will come in judgment. Like, you know, we're going to find out he's it's the same God, right? God had mercy in the Old Testament, too. And I just think that's just, it's just not good Bible study like, to understand the Lord Jesus and understand the Father. But Jesus perfectly represents him. He's made in the image of, of the Father. Next up we have, we're about to wrap this up. We're doing good on time. I did it. It says, after making the purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So if anybody asks you, where is Jesus today? Where is he? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's his symbolic throne of power. And what's up next is his enemies to be made a footstool from him. Matthew 26, 64 says this. You have said to yourself, Jesus answered, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus has taken his rightful seat next to the Father. 
He's seated in heaven. This is the place of authority and power. Hebrews later is going to tell us to let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help in our time of need. We're going to find that this is the source where he's sitting at. He's answering prayers. He's interceding for the saints from this position of victory and power seated on his throne. If we go back to Hebrews, it says this is the one who is speaking. Right? So I think it would be good if you have your Bibles. Let's read those first three verses again with all of this in the head. Hannah, you can go back to that uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Look at this. Long ago, not many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After he's made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What a description of our Lord. This is the one speaking today. If speaking means obey, here's my challenge to you. Are you listening to him? Are you obeying him? This Jesus whom you say you serve is the creator God, the sustainer God, the one when it's all said and done, we'll inherit everything that belongs to him. His will be an everlasting kingdom, right? A dominion, a reign that will have no end. And he's speaking to you. He's given us his word. He's revealed himself in all of creation. What's your stumbling block? You have unforgiveness in your heart. Can you not let go of something? Are you not loving your neighbor? Do you badmouth people? What's going on? Someone's speaking to you. We're going to have to give an account for it, the Bible says. There's grace, there's mercy from Jesus. Yes, we'll be forgiven all manner of sin. But we're still called to do something about it. It's what the Bible calls sanctification. We're working on something. This isn't a guilt trip. A pastor's laying on you right before dismissing you to run out to Chuck E. Cheese. It's something I have to deal with, too. I was telling Trace yesterday, I was like, I'm praying through issues in my life where I realize I'm not on board with God's plan in certain areas of my life. I'm like, man, I just, man, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get with this. I gotta get with the program. I'm convicted in my own life. We all, we all have areas. Like, there's no one in here that's a perfect human. There's no one in here that could be said, you're the radiance of the glory of God. None of us reflect him perfectly. And he knows that. And there's mercy for that. But the time of him speaking and us not doing anything it's just no excuse for it because the times passed, he held, there was a mediator. Maybe he didn't like the mediator. Right now, his son is speaking. I pray that you would ask for ears and ears. That's my challenge this week to you. Just begin to pray to hear. Amen? That means obey. Hear and obey. Maybe you haven't heard anything. Find out what that is. I've found in my own life that God doesn't give me a list of everything that's wrong. It seems to me I always get one or two things. He's very patient with me. Because have you ever tried to clean your whole house at once? What's the, what's the worst strategy for cleaning your house? Doing everything at once. I see my girlfriend do it. Uh, that's the worst strategy. Yeah, do not ask girlfriends and spouses to clean for you. Hey, by the way, nobody asked me. My New Year's resolution was to make sure the dishes are done every night. It's totally sucked, but it's been done every single night. And I'm only 15 days into this, and this is going to be the longest year of my life. Okay. <laughs> um, 
But the, the solution to, to, to a, a clean, organized space is to start on one thing, right? Start with your bedroom. Start with me, it's always the kitchen. That's why I pick that room. Because if the kitchen's clean, it naturally wants to spread to the rest of the house. If the kitchen's a mess, I just don't care about anything. That's personal. In your life, when you're trying to clean up certain things, is tackling 50 things at once is just going to make you just want to quit. Start with something. What's the, what's the big thing in your life? You know what it is. Like, here's the funny thing. I always act like you should pray about it. You know what it is. You know what you're doing. You know what your sin is. Surprise. No, you're not surprised. We all know what we have to work on. Like, as soon as I said, what's in your heart? Don't tell me what it is. Raise your hand if you exactly knew in your own life what you got to work on. Please, I mean, humor me. Like, keep your hands up. Almost everybody. If you don't know, that's what you should begin to pray. It's like, okay, like we should all be working on something. You know, we have our own life. That's the one who's speaking. This is what Hebrews is going to challenge us. Because we're now, once, today we just talked about the one who is speaking. We're going to find out other things that are speaking into our lives where we have not put Jesus in the correct order. And we're all guilty of this thing. Amen? Amen. I think we got some questions coming in, but we'll deal with that in a minute. Let's, uh, let's end right here.